0: today on This Christian Life.
1: I was a seeker. I had read the Tibetan Book of the Dead. I had studied with psychics. I was into astrology. All of that uh, deeply steeped in Eastern religion. I said, Jesus, okay, listen. I said, I'm nobody's fool. And you're going to have to really uh, show up beyond any shadow of a doubt. But if you do... And if you will convince me of your reality, I'll give you my life. From that moment, it was like the hounds of heaven were after me.
0: Today's guest, Steve Cavalli, found himself on a quest to find Jesus. A quest that left nearly all his worldly possessions behind. It was just Steve, his backpack, and his loyal dog. They hitchhiked hundreds of miles in search of truth. He met seekers who placed their hope in everything and worldly philosophy under the sun, and he met others with no hope at all. If you met Steve now, you'd think he was just another ordinary suburban guy. But back then, you might cross to the other side of a street if he was walking towards you. He was a hitchhiker on an epic journey, just Steve, his dog, and his ever-present backpack, taking one wild ride after another, all in search of truth,
1: in search of Jesus, on this Christian life. So let me start about September, 1970. I had just done four years in the military. I had been in Vietnam for a year. I had been drugging a lot in Vietnam. And of course, in the four years in the Navy, I found everything from hashish to pot and uh, people were sending me LSD in the mail. And so I was drugging pretty heavily in the Navy. But well, when I got discharged in September of 70, uh, I dropped out almost immediately. I grew my hair long to my shoulders, had a huge beard, a four-inch brass ring in my nose, and two strings of dog's canine teeth necklaces that I had bought from a headhunting tribe in the Philippines years before. So um, I was uh, pretty radical uh, and lived up on a hippie commune called Love Light Ranch in the hills of Sonoma, running around naked up there, uh, on the hippie commune and eating vulgar weed and macrobiotic diet and chanting yogi chants and i was a seeker i had read the bhagavad gita the tibetan book of the dead i had studied with psychics i was into astrology i studied buddhism i had my own guru i had my mantra all of that deeply steeped in eastern religion and an avid reader and college educated mind you you know it was a profusely blooming spiritual desert out there but there was no fruit and i was badly disillusioned had a girlfriend at the time um when i first started sleeping with her she was 13. i'm sorry for that uh breaks my heart Uh, that's what drugs will do to you i married her when she was 16 and that ended in divorce rather quickly and the way that um I would handle my pain as I would hit the road with my dog in my backpack. I didn't know where exactly I was going but um, my heart was broken and uh, my life was broken uh, despite all of my religious searching. About a month before this couple moved up on the commune, a man named Jonathan Gainsborough and his girlfriend Jeanette, soon to be his wife, uh, he looked like a hippie, had long hair and white muslin robes that he wore, and they looked like the rest of us up there. The first thing he said is that they were celibate. Well, I thought that was strange. I mean, they were sleeping in the same bed, and nobody was celibate in the 70s. That was free love and all of that. Well, the second thing I noticed about him, one day I was in his cabin, and he had this big black Bible laying on his bed. And with some disdain, I said to him, you read that thing? And oh, yeah, I read it. He said, Jeanette and I are born again. He said, we were camping by the banks of the Sacramento River and we received Jesus and we were baptized. So Jonathan and Jeanette were saved about three months. That's all. Babes in the Lord, really, but definitely born again. So he started doing these little sing-alongs up on the commune with his guitar and in those days, it was kind of a shoulder period. Uh, Jesus was all right, and Krishna was all right, and Buddha was all right, and so was Confucius, and you know, everybody was doing their own thing. Well, in these sing-alongs that Jonathan was leading, he'd share from the Bible, and in those days, there were hash pipes in the room, and Bibles, and people smoking joints and reading their Bibles, and that was all all right. I mean, it was kind of that pre-Christian, before the big revival that happened in the 70s. So I was getting smatterings of the Gospels. I wasn't going because I believed in Jesus. I just was part of what was happening on the commune. Well, anyway, as I was saying, Anne and I had broken up. I was leaving the commune for parts unknown, and he and Jeanette met me at the gate that morning they said, Steve, will you receive Jesus to be your savior before you go? Will you pray with us? We want to see you in heaven. We don't want to see you in hell. And I got a little upset. I said, you know, I said, I don't believe in Jesus, you guys. I said, I'm in the Eastern religion. And I said, Jesus was just a prophet, a teacher. He's dead now. And they said, Steve, that's not true. He's alive. And he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. I said, you know, I don't believe all of that. I, believe it's the same mountain doesn't matter what side of the mountain you come up the Krishna side the Buddha side the hindu side the jesus side same mountain all leading to the same place and they said well okay if you won't pray to receive jesus will you do this will you take this little bible with you on your trip and will you read it and they gave me a little gideon's bible and i said you know this is what i hate about you christians i said do you want to push your stuff on everybody and it's like your way or the highway and you think you got the only truth and I said, out of respect for you two, I'll take it. But I'm not going to read it. And they said, well, listen, if you get up to Seattle, there's this Christian commune up there, and they're good brothers. And if you need a shower or a place to stay. uh..." So they wrote the address and they stuck it in that Bible. And I put it in my shirt pocket. And they said, hey, just one more thing. Will you pray to this Jesus you don't believe in? Just talk to him like you're talking to me. Tell him, Jesus, I don't believe you're alive. I don't believe you exist. But if you exist and if you're alive, and if you show yourself to me beyond any shadow of a doubt, I'll give you my life. Will you do that? I was superstitious enough to believe that if Jesus showed up, that uh, he might ask me to change a few things, and I wasn't willing to. That's the sin nature right there. want to be my own God. Well, I took off. I'm hitchhiking up the coast, and I end up in a campground in Crescent City and. Jonathan's words just haunted me. You know, he said, will you pray to this Jesus? And if he's real, will you give him your life? You know, I had to ask myself a serious question. Uh, number one, are you a truth seeker? I thought I was a truth seeker. I was a voracious reader pursuing religion. And, and I had to ask myself, honestly, if there is a truth that I didn't have, what I wanted, Even if it cost me. What if Jesus was real? I said, Jesus, okay, listen. I said, I'm nobody's fool. and I'm smart. You know, you're going to have to really uh, show up beyond any shadow of a doubt. But if you do, and if you will convince me of your reality, I'll give you my life. Don't ever pray that prayer unless you mean it. From that moment, it was like the hounds of heaven were after me. Every car that picked me up, it seemed, was a Christian they would preach to me you know and they'd get me in the car are you saved brother do you know jesus and i look like charlie manson with a preacher from the black lagoon with this ring in my nose and this beard and you know i'd pull out my little uh, gideon's bible you know my club card see yeah i'm in the club They were so kind to me, and some would give me a $20 bill, some would take me out to a meal, others would offer to let me stay at their home, and I got so tired of being preached to that if I looked in the car and it was the Virgin Mary on the dashboard or a cross hanging from the mirror or a Bible in the car, I'd wave them off. I get up to Eastern Oregon and it was very hot. It was like July and 103 degrees, right? I'm out there with my German Shepherd and my backpack. I had been hitchhiking on that crossroad there for hours, it seemed, and just baking in the sun. And my poor dog was panting and I had no water. This guy pulls up in this black car and all the windows are rolled up. Well, many of you uh, may know, in 1970s, very few cars had air conditioning. Well, obviously this one did because his windows were rolled up and uh, I opened the door to get in and the first thing I noticed was this big black Bible on the seat and I said, oh man, do I want to do this again? I was so hot and the poor dog was dying that I got in. Turned out he was a minister and I rode with him for almost two hours across the Oregon desert and he preached the whole gospel, all of it. Let me out somewhere below Seattle and I had been at this on-ramp where he let me out for uh, a very long time and it was getting dark and uh, it was an inner city area just south of Seattle and a lot of people with wine bottles and brown paper bags and felt uncomfortable there. It was probably a high crime area and it was starting to get dark and my option was to sleep at that on-ramp and I didn't want to be there and I prayed my second prayer. I said, Lord, if you're real, If you would just give me a ride, I would be thankful." And this kid pulls up in this old 56 Ford station wagon, this guy with dreadlocks, and nobody had dreadlocks in the 70s, I mean, that was the first guy I ever saw with uh, dreadlocks, and I was radical, but this guy was more radical than me, and I looked in his eyes, and right away I could see he was mentally ill. Everything in me didn't want to get in that car. I mean, I could see he was crazy. He had been living in this station wagon and throwing all his garbage into the back of the station wagon. There was rotting yogurt containers and banana peels and discarded fast food back there. The place smelled like a garbage truck. He'd been living in this car. And right away, I said, man, I shouldn't ride with this guy. He's not well. And so he gets up on the freeway, up on the the elevated portion, 30 feet over the top of the city on stilts. And he looks at me with these dove's eyes, this gentle deer's eyes, and he goes, so where are you from? Then he flashes on me, you son of a bee, and he starts cursing me, and I said, whoa, you know, hey, cool it, man, what's going on with you? And then you get these dove's eyes again, and you're, are you married? And- I said, "Uh, no, I said, I'm single, I've got a girl. You son of a gun, he starts cursing me again, and he's all over the freeway. I mean, he's driving just erratically, and, oh, my heart is pounding. I mean, I want to get out of this car at the very next on-ramp, you know? And this went on for about 10 minutes, him flashing back and forth between this gentle soul and this cursing, vicious personality, and all of a sudden, he slams on the brakes right on the freeway. Ah! get out get out get out of this effing car he's kicking me with his foot and now he stopped right in the slow lane there's no bike lane there's no pull off there's nothing and he kicks me out of the car and he peels out and leaves me in a cloud of burnt rubber i'm stuck on a one foot curb it's not even a foot eight inch curb with my dog and my backpack and cars flying by at 50 miles an hour and I'm trying to get my dog up on the curb so he won't get hit. And my backpack fell over and all my pots and pans went out into the slow lane and cars are running over my pots and pans and my dog is out in the second lane and the cars are swerving around him, blowing the horn. And this guy sees me and he slams on the brakes and he skids to a halt. I mean, cars are going around him at 50 miles an hour, blurring the horn. He stopped in the slow lane on the freeway and... I get in, you know, I get the dog in, I get what's left of my backpack in the back seat there and we take off and I look over, he's a 50, 55-year-old man, very straight, shirt and tie, short hair, clean-shaven man, and the guy is sobbing uncontrollably. I mean, just sobbing, you know, (laughs) he's trying to drive and he's just sobbing and I'm thinking another nutcase. This guy's all over the freeway, he can't even drive, he's sobbing uncontrollably and I said to him, sir, I said, listen, uh, can I help you? I said, listen, you want to pull over? I'll buy you a cup of coffee and, you know, we can talk. I'll be all right. Just give me a minute. Just give me a minute. I'll be all right. He's trying to drive, you know, and he's sobbing. And I said, sir, you're not okay. I said, please. I said, let's pull over. I don't feel safe. I said, you're not driving well. And what if you really want to know I'm going to kill a man? And he reaches across the, the seat and he yanks this army blanket off the back seat. And in the back seat, he's got a big thing of rope and three concrete pier blocks, like you put under a house foundation. They're about 25 pounds each. And he tells me how he's going to kill this guy that night, wrap the body in the blanket with the pier blocks, and he's going to throw the body off Puget Sound and sink the body that night. My heart's pounding. I'm in a car with a, with a murderer, you know? So anyway, um, I'm speechless. I'm in the car with the murderer. I didn't know what to say. I reached in my pocket and I pulled out that little Gideon Bible that I'd never read. And I just popped it open. And my eyes fell to a verse in Matthew or one of the Gospels. And I said to him, sir, I said, Jesus said, peace, I give to you. Not as the world gives, give I to you. You think there's peace for somebody like me? I'm going to kill a man. I shut the Bible, you know, and my heart's just pounding. I don't know what to say, you know. I, I open the Bible again. I fall on a different verse. And I said, sir, I said, Jesus says here in the Gospels, he says, whoever comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. You think there's room for somebody like me in heaven? I'm going to murder a man. I shut the Bible again, and he's driving erratically all over the freeway. And I mean, the Holy Spirit is working through me for this man, and I'm not even saved. I don't even know Jesus, but God loved this guy. And as I'm reading the scriptures to him, he starts to get control. We pulled off into a Sambo's and he begins to pour his heart out to me. He's the father of a young man. His son was a hippie like me, that's why he picked me up. His son was doing 10 years in the Washington State Penitentiary for sale of narcotics. Well, apparently his son had been living out on Victoria Island with the Filipino woman who was one of the largest heroin dealers in the Seattle area. The narcotics agents had been staking out the house for quite some time and they did a bust on the house when she happened to be out and they caught his son with a loaded revolver, 10,000 of cash and all these kilos of heroin. So they had put everything on his son. Well, this was the father that had picked me up who had lost his marriage over the stress of this, had mortgaged his house and had cashed in his retirement to get money for lawyer after lawyer and appeal after appeal to try to keep his son from going to prison. And he had lost the final case, and his son was doing 10 years, and he was going to kill the judge. He had already been up to the judge's house. He knew where the bedroom was. He was going to climb up the toilet drain pipe on the outside of the house, uh, slip in the second-story window at night, and kill him in his sleep, and lower the body down with the rope and take it out to Puget Sound. Well, as I'm in Sambo's and ministering to him, <laughs> me who is not born again, I'm ministering to him, guess what falls out of that Bible? That slip of paper that I had totally forgotten about that Jonathan had put in there, about this commune up on Queen Anne Hill. And I said, if you'll come with me to this place, I know these people can help you. And this poor broken man came with me. We drive up to Queen Anne Hill, we find the place, Five Victorian homes, three on one side of the street, two on the other, all freshly painted in this ghetto area. Some hippies working out front, you know, in the garden as the last of the sun's rays were there. And I said, this must be the place. And it was. We asked if we could come in and talk with someone, and they invited us in for dinner. We had dinner together with live music at the table. And after dinner, they shared the gospel with this man, and he got saved and came to Jesus. They baptized him in the backyard that night in a clawfoot tub that was sunk in the ground with tiki torches and a choir and all this beautiful, beautiful manifestation of the Lord. He came to Jesus, gave his son into the hands of God and turned around and went home, a healed man with peace all over his life. I had never seen a life transformed. That first life I had seen transformed by the Lord. I stayed in the commune for two weeks. Do you think I would receive Jesus? Absolutely not. They preached to me every day. Every day they preached to me from the word of God. I was a good guy. I mean, I baked bread for them. I washed floors. I cleaned toilets. They loved me. They wanted me to stay. They said, you're one of us. I said, I'm not one of you. I don't believe that Jesus is the only way. I just couldn't believe it. They cried when I left there. So now I'm... a. Uh, I'm hitchhiking and this guy picks me up and he says where are you going? I said oh, wherever you're going I have no destination he said well you may not want to go where I'm going he said I own a ranch up on a one lane mountain road and I'm going up to my ranch and I said well I got nowhere to be and nowhere to go so let's go well I'm thinking right he's going to put me up at his house because a lot of people did especially if it was late in the evening get to his uh, driveway and he goes well here's where you get out he said this is where I live. I'll see you later.
0: Better stop your crying Better set your poor heart free
1: I was in the middle of nowhere and this guy is kicking me out. Worse stop even yet, crying. it's starting to drizzle Better and it looks like rain. So I remember this railroad bridge and I'm thinking I could find shelter under there maybe a dry place to camp for the night half a mile before his gate. And it's so so I'm walking back down the road, you know, to the railroad trestle and there's all these papers all over the side of the road. They're all fluorescent colors. I'm thinking, man, you better get some of these papers. If you want to have a fire tonight, you better grab as many of these as you can. I gathered this big armload of all these papers. So I get down to the railroad trestle and sure enough, here's a campsite with the fire ring and it's dry under there and me and the dog and the backpack, you know, we get set up and I start crumpling up these papers to make a fire. And guess what? They're all Bible tracts, different varieties. There must have been 10 or 20 different Bible tracts, all printed on big low paper, right? So I'm sitting there all night with my flashlight reading Bible tracts, right? and looking up scriptures in my little Bible that I had that I'm all of a sudden uh, a little interested in, you know. I had seen enough that made me think that maybe this Jesus was real, you know. (laughs) I mean, it took a lot. I was a hard nut to crack, you know. I just wasn't gonna come down easy. So the next morning, I I hike back up the hill to this little uh, one pump gas station general store and I have to use the bathroom. So I'm sitting in the stall uh, in the bathroom and I look over to my left And on the wall of the bathroom, somebody had written John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Is this coincidence? All these Christians that pick me up on their Bible tracts, the the murderer. So anyway, I take off again. Now I'm up to uh, Vancouver canada and i'm looking for a place to sleep and there's a big park up there called stanley park and i heard this music uh, coming over the hill so i kind of go over this hill and here's this amphitheater with about 500 people it's about 4 5 o'clock in the afternoon and so i sit down with my dog and i'm listening to this concert well it was a christian concert and different people are getting up to the microphone playing Christian songs and their guitar and people giving testimony and and wow, I mean, I God had my attention big time by now and I'm listening you know, so they were just closing up about 5 o'clock and they said well, we're just about to shut down for the afternoon and we're going to open up the stage here like an altar if anybody would like to come down and pray well, hey, listen, I wanted to pray, I really did, I had seen a lot, you know, I mean i had been through a lot I tied my dog to a tree, and I'm heading down, and other people are going down, and I figured they're just people like me that were in the park that Sunday that had heard this concert. Wrong. (laughs) No, they were their guys, all scattered among the audience. And as I'm going down, two guys grabbed me, one on each arm in an arm lock. I freaked out. I threw them off me. I started running through the park. I mean, I, I had had it with God and the devil and murderers. I didn't come back until like 7 p.m. after they had packed up every amplifier and every instrument. They were all gone. I didn't want to be messed with. I do not want these Christians getting a hold of me again. And to much to my surprise, my dog was still tied to the tree and my backpack was still there. I mean, uh, I was drugged enough that I, I left the dog in a backpack and didn't come back for several hours, you know? <coughs> So now I'm heading across uh, Canada. I'm over in Clinton, British Columbia, out in the Canadian desert out there. And I'm sleeping in a laundromat out there. And two o'clock in the morning, I'm up on the changing table, sound asleep in my sleeping bag. And this couple comes in about two in the morning and wakes me up and asks me to get off the changing table so they could fold their laundry. I thought that was kind of rude. They'd wake me up. But I got up and I start telling them this story that I'm telling you and sharing everything with them that I'm sharing with you. And I said, you know, I said, I just don't believe that Jesus is the only way. I said, what about all these millions of people that follow Muhammad and Krishna and all these good people that are religious and uh, same mountain? Well, they said, you know, we believe what you believe, Steve. They said, we're Baha'is. They were Baha'i elders, mind you. These were (laughs) Baha'is times 10. They said, we're Baha'i elders. And they said, we believe in the Baha'i faith that every thousand years, God sends an avatar, And uh, they had this chart. They had a briefcase. And just like the JWs, they had all their material in their briefcase. And they're showing me this chart, you know, and how every thousand years, here comes Krishna and Confucius and Buddha and Jesus and then Muhammad. And then their guy, you know, Baha'u'llah in 1880 in Persia, their guy, their Messiah, Baha'u'llah. I say, that's what I believe. This makes sense. I believe this too. You guys, this is what I've been looking for, you know. So forget Jesus. I invited Baha'u'llah to be my savior. I prayed to receive Baha'u'llah. And they took me home and I stayed with them several days at their house and they played seals and croft music for me. These wonderful songs about love. Seals and croft are Baha'is. I don't know if you guys knew that, but they are. And I was totally convinced I had found the way, the truth and the life. And it was Baha'u'llah. They loaded me down with Baha'i books and literature, and from there, all the way home for the next month and a half, I stayed in Baha'i homes. By the time I got back, I was totally on fire for the Baha'i faith. So I called my girlfriend, Anne, and uh, I didn't go back up to the commune at that point. I rented a little house in Glen Ellen so I could be closer to my girlfriend. I said, Ann, I've found it. It's Baha'i. This is what it is. Now we can get back together and make our relationship work because now I found the truth. And so uh, she did get back together with me and she was still living at home, but coming over, you know, and sleeping with me, still in my sin. Started going to the Baha'i temple there in Boy's Hot Springs and they would read from the Baha'i books and people were smoking cigarettes and drinking coffee. I mean, there was no truth. And Ann, and I broke up again.
0: Some people will tell you that all roads lead to God. They'll tell you that no matter what path you're on, it is the right path. But the Bible says in 1 Timothy 2, five, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus.
1: Well, at this point, uh, I was so devastated that uh, I wanted to find this Jonathan that had first challenged me to believe in Jesus. So I went back up to the commune. When I got up there, you know, Jonathan's house was burned to the ground, uh, just nothing but ashes. And I went to the owner of the property, and his house was burned to the ground also. I thought that was really strange. I went to some of the other people on the commune, and I said, hey, what happened to uh, Jonathan Gainsborough? I said, what happened to the Christians that were up here? And they said, oh, they wanted to preach that Jesus stuff to everybody, and Jonathan was telling everybody that they shouldn't run naked anymore and they should believe in Jesus. And they said, uh, we kind of uh, drove them off the commune. He said, I think they're all living down in Boy's Hot Springs and some rented house. They're all living together. I don't know how I got up there. You had to go through people's backyards and cattle guards and open gates to about a mile and a half up a dirt road on top of Sonoma Mountain. And you it would take you a map. And even with a map, you couldn't find this place. I found the place. Uh, They told me that they were following some old man, a 95-year-old patriarch that loved the Lord. Now, mind you, I'd been gone, you know, several months. Well, by the time I got up there, there was a thriving hippie church, you know, 50 people, maybe more, I don't know, uh, following this old man. He looked like Moses, and he had this long white beard and these blue eyes, and he was preaching in this old metal building up there with theater seats. That was the church, this old tin building. And after church, they'd have potlucks and there'd be banjos and fiddles and bluegrass music. And boy, it was a beautiful, organic scene, you know, just a semi-communal. Some people were living up there in different trailers and houses. And ah, I liked what was happening. I still wasn't interested in Jesus, mind you. I still did not believe. But I was into the vibes. Every week, Jim Swallow would come after me and he'd say, Steve, What's taking you so long? He said, you've heard the gospel. I said, please don't pressure me. I won't come up anymore if you do that. Well, week two, he'd come after me. Same thing. Week three, week four, he's coming after me again. Well, by week five, I'm getting mad. I mean, I'm really mad. And here he comes across the lawn after me again. I know the whole routine. He was going to pressure me and I'm backing up and I'm throwing up my hands. And I'm saying, Jim, if you do this, I'm not going to come up anymore. And I'm backing up. And unbeknownst to me, there was a redwood tree behind me and I backed into the redwood tree and that's what stopped my retreat from him. He fell on me, just fell on me, threw his arms around me and he started weeping over me. I mean, just sobbing, weeping. And nobody had ever wept over me, not my mother, not my father. Nobody had ever cared for my soul enough to weep over me. And he starts to pray that Jesus would open my eyes and he's crying and he's hugging me like a buoy in the middle of the ocean. He wouldn't let go. And all I can tell you, saints, at that point, the Holy Spirit hit me so hard that all of a sudden Jesus' arms were around me. And like a slideshow, he showed me my life, how he had answered that prayer. The tracks I found, the murderer, the people that fed me, I just started sobbing, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me, Jesus. And then it was like a backpack fell off when I said, forgive me, this backpack that I'd been carrying for 26 years of sin and guilt. When that backpack of sin fell off, I felt like I was had had an internal bath. I mean, I was born again, I knew it, I knew it, I knew it, and I started screaming at the top of my lungs, I know it's you, I know it's you, and I'm bursting into tears. I know it's you, I wasn't talking to him. I was talking to the one that was holding me, and that was Jesus. Jesus was the one, not him. That's the end of the story, until I married Debbie, you know, seven years later, and uh, Debbie was the one God had ordained for me, uh, I, I was a solid brother in Christ. I follow Jesus as I do today. Anyway, that's my story. And I just wanted you to have it. Uh, Jesus is real. He'll do the same for you that he did for me. Just don't be so hard. Don't don't be like I was. God says in the Bible, do not be like a bull or an ox. that I have to put a ring in your nose and lead you in order to get you to follow me. He said, just let me put my eye upon you. So uh, that's my prayer for you today, whoever you are that's hearing this. He's good, he's gentle, he's kind. Give your heart to him. I'm going into this major surgery. I may live, I may die. doesn't matter. I've had a wonderful life and I know my Savior.
0: Who is like our God? Who formed each of us while we were still in our mother's womb? Who personally designed us? Who would tackle us with an embrace so strong and a love so true? Our God. That's our Savior, Jesus Christ. He's probably the one calling you on the highways and byways of life. Just like he called Steve. Steve answered God's call. and Because he did, his life's journey won't end in death. Steve is now on the road to eternal life. This present world is just a pit stop, but it's an important one. Because it's here that we all get to share our story about how God called each of us into this Christian life. This Christian Life is a production of Family Stations Incorporated and is not affiliated with Christian Life Magazine or Plus Communications Incorporated.
1: Family Radio.